how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 387, where I speak with screenwriter Gabe Liebman. You got to start doing stand-up, still does some stand-up today, but you'll be familiar with watching some of his work, such as writing for Amy, Inside Amy Schumer, The Krull Show, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Ten Fifteen, Broad City, and Big Mouth, where he's recently got an Emmy nomination. In this interview, Gabe talks about branding yourself with sexuality, not being fearful about your comedy, how TV shows misrepresent the writer's room, why movements are stretched in network television, such as like characters getting married, and how there's freedom in, quote, handcrafted projects. Um, I did stand-up, and I still do stand-up. Um, I was like a performer and kind of still am, less so. Um, but I was a, a stand-up comedian in New York City, and that's actually where I met Nick Kroll. Mm -hmm. um, and that's maybe even our origin story of, as friends. And I've worked on a couple of his projects with him. Um, yeah, so I, I was a stand-up in New York, and I got to know a lot of great other comedians. And as people around me sort of started to like pop and get their own shows, um, I became someone that people liked to have like write with <laughs> right. um, them. I'm like good at other people's writing and other people's voices, I guess. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the first cool writing job I ever had was on Billy on the street mm. with Billy Eichner. And then I worked on Amy Schumer's sketch show um, inside Amy Schumer and then moved to LA and I started working for Kroll show, Nick Kroll's uh, Comedy Central sketch show. Um, and I've just like stayed put here in LA bopping around comedy rooms. Did stand up um, fast track a few things, sort of like confidence, dealing with rejection, maybe finding your voice, <laughs> anything like that? that yeah, comes all of those things. Definitely. Like you have to be kind of deranged uh, to do stand up, I think, and put yourself out there like that. And um, yeah, you definitely develop a thick skin. You also just, I mean, the way I see it, like as someone who's been through it is like the fast, the thing that fast tracked me the most was just making a like connections with other creative people. So that like, as I've tried, you know, explored my life as a writer in Hollywood, it's like, I had this built in group of friends who are on all different sides of the equation, whether they're actors or they're directors or other writers. It's like a good networking thing. It's a real bonding experience for sure. Do you remember certain jokes or maybe a certain point of view where you started to kind of see your voice come out in a way or anything like that? Like where you start like, oh, this is me. Anything yeah, like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly early on, I like really led with like my sexuality as a gay guy. Um, mm -hmm as a sort of like way to sort of like instantly brand myself and like say this is this is what you can expect from me and I, I I felt like it was like a good challenge in the early days to be on stage in straight 
environments, but mm-hmm. making a ton of jokes about being gay and seeing like what resonated and what, I don't know, played on both sides of the aisle <laughs> sexually right. or whatever. But definitely that was like, certainly how I found my voice was just sort of like what makes me different than most other people, but still translates, I guess, to the mm-hmm. a bigger audience. Did that help you kind of know what was going to be funny on the page or was like, what are some of the difficulties of that transition from getting that feedback immediately versus like maybe pitching the writer's room or writing specs, that kind of thing. I mean, it's like you sort of like the rejection is so instant <laughs> in stand up that you sort of like, it sort of numbs you. Like it's, a, I don't know if I'm any better at telling what's going to be good, but I'm a little less fearful about throwing stuff out there to see it what sticks because I still I mean this many years in I I still think something's gonna be so funny and then it just like completely falls on its face it's like you never quite know until you do it out loud or in front of people so it's like maybe it's made me a little less like it made a little more fearless about it but I don't know if I'm any better at gauging (laughs) to be honest I remember kind of like thinking back to maybe before the Kroll show or inside Amy Schumer, um, do you remember any misconceptions you had about a writer's room, anything that kind of surprised you? Yeah. I mean, I didn't really know what a like actual job it was. Like, I think I thought it was like, cause the, you know, I've seen it portrayed on TV shows throughout the decades, um, and I think I thought it was like, just kind of like a goof, a goof session or whatever. Like I didn't really, I was not prepared for like how much work actually and thought actually goes into everything and how much time you actually spend talking about like characters, emotions mm-hmm. and the kind of like stuff that's not funny. And then you sort of like get to apply the humor to it, but like, yeah, it's like much more of a job than I thought it, thought coming into it. I it, it, it's often portrayed as just like snacking and farting around or whatever, but and there is a lot of that, but you also like there's so many documents, there's so much like talking and thinking out loud and going around in circles and then checking with people. Um and a lot of feedback from, you know, the network and the producers and stuff. So it really is like a much more corporate, like making a product job than I expected for sure. Would you say, is there any difference to like doing, you've done some cable shows and then like Brooklyn Nine-Nine is more of a traditional um, you yeah. know, main show. Is there differences in that or is it just every, every writer's room is just different in general? There's such a difference. I mean, it's like, I find that like in cable and in streaming, which is like the new cable or whatever, or like um, basically like when you get away from your traditional networks and and your, you know, commercial breaks and all of that stuff, like I find it much, it's a much more free environment where like I find the characters can like express themselves more honestly and like it's much more fun to write like people who curse because like I curse you know it's just like it's a little thing like that like where it's like I know that there's a sort of like a high-minded um thought around language that like you should be able to be funny without cursing but it's also like yeah it's also like hard to write a 45 year old who never says shit like who is that I've never met that person so it's also just like it becomes pretty fake um pretty quickly um and also like uh 
I think where a lot of networks are sort of getting away from this, but like the difference between a 10 episode season and a 20, yeah. 20 to 25 episode mm-hmm. season is so different. You can tell in a shorter season, you can tell such a conscious, like you can be so conscious about the story and the arc that you're telling. Whereas when we were, you know, we would make 20 to 25 episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine a season. And there's just a lot of episodes that are like, yeah. what if they do relay races or whatever? It's like, it's not on the story of the main character having a baby or whatever thing you're right. even tracking. It's just sort of like, um, which is, it, it's fun in its own way, but it's it, it's back to the, just the sort of like the fakiness of it to me uh, in my own experience. Well, it's definitely like minuscule growth. You can't have Jake Peralta grow very much because exactly. he's got to stay who he is, right? Yes, yeah. And if he and Amy are going to get married, you know it's not for an entire calendar year. You know, it's like right. there's no like honesty in the in the movements. It's like you're it's it's very stretched. It's very stretched, in my opinion. Great show, loved working on it. Would give my life for everyone who worked on it. But mm-hmm. it's just in that medium. It's just a little bit different. It's it's not to my taste. So have you gotten some more freedom kind of moving towards like Pin 15 or Q Force or Big Mouth? Like you kind of mentioned like your sexuality and, and things like that. Have you seen, I mean, uh, I mean, there's some of that came out on Brooklyn Nine-Nine towards the end, For sure. and then, you know, um, but are you seeing more and more freedom? What are some of your thoughts on that? The way like big picture, the way things are going? Yeah. I mean, I think like something like Pen 15, like, um, you know, you would never find that on a big network. It's like, it was such a small like sort of handcrafted projects like where you know it was a really weird concept it was really really weird on paper it was like a big swing for anyone to invest money in that because it just maybe it seemed like it was just going to be a sketch with not a lot of heart or whatever but then um yeah there was like some freedom in how small it was and how I you know working on it from season one I felt like oh we're making like a cult hit here like I didn't expect it to be as big as it was like my in my mind it was like I was thinking back to myself at 19 seeing Strangers with Candy for the first time and like this is for weirdos and whoever finds this is gonna love it but it wasn't like this is gonna come on after the Super Bowl so we better (laughs) nail it you know what I mean so there was just freedom in how small it was for sure I mean, what are your kind of bigger thoughts about comedy? I mean, comedy is very specific. Things are getting more and more niche, especially on some of the streamers, because they can, because you can find a million people out of a billion or whatever it is. Like, what are some of your thoughts now? Like, is it just like anything can kind of make it? I mean, what are, you know, what is I mean, there's more opportunities than ever, for sure. Like, I feel very lucky to be a comedy writer in this era and to have so many streamers, um, and so many outlets and so many just, yeah, different ways that a show could find an audience. You know, I it, it must have been so weird writing comedy when there was three channels. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's definitely, I feel really, I feel a lot of gratitude that this is my era. Um, I also just like in this moment, I feel like the balloon expanded to a million streamers and now we're seeing it shrink. Um, so like, who knows what... I'm going to have to say (laughs) in two years when the dust settles, like, and are, is there, is, are we going back to there only being three channels? It's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, It definitely feels like we're like standing on a, a, in a moment of change. So I talked to um, Nicholas Stoller who directed the new movie bros, which is kind of the first big um, gay rom-com really. Um, We talked a little bit, Nicholas is not gay, but he wrote it with Billy. 
So we talked a little bit about like almost like some commercials that kind of just add a gay character. Some shows do that. It's not really there. Um, what are some other just problems or tropes you've seen? How can writers avoid those? I mean, obviously it's just going deeper with each character, but what are some of the things people can do to really like, I mean, is it just adding people to the staff or having conversations or what are some of your thoughts like that? Yeah, definitely. Like I think the, you know, the, one of the best ways you could possibly set yourself up for success is, you know, to surround yourself with, with people who have different backgrounds than you, who think differently than you and are going to therefore bring different experiences and jokes and stories to the table. It's only going to make your show so much better and so much richer. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think like something I've learned over the years is like um, it really pays to like write stories that you actually care about and aren't just like a cash grab um because your work is always so much better so like just in the you know like it's it's always good to you know if you are a gay person or a person from a different background than your cis hetero white you know, uh, backgrounds to sort of like not hold yourself back from telling your own story or telling the story of your family or the story of, you know, your friends who you connect with because um, you're going to do such a great version of that that no one else is going to think of. So like, you know, certainly coming up, I tried to sort of like sand my edges down a little bit and like fit into the mold that I thought would lead to the greatest success. But as soon as I stopped doing that, um, and just was like, well, this is what I have to offer. And the way I do it is pretty different than anyone else would if they were faking it. Mm -hmm. um, I found myself to just have a like much more success in finding an audience and finding executives to work with and stuff. It's like, um, just, I sort of, I guess it's like the, just get out of your own way and, and don't expect that you have to like fake being something that you're not. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you met Nick Kroll early. You've worked together a few times. Tell me about uh, coming on to Big Mouth and what that was like. Um, I was already such a fan of Big Mouth um, just as a viewer. It's such a funny show. Um, and so much of like what I love about Nick um, was so alive on the show. A lot of like the voices and the characters that he's been doing on stage or on the Kroll show um, mm -hmm. are there. Um, but it was so nice to see that sort of like integrated into like a narrative world that has like an aesthetic and stories to tell and other characters that Nick doesn't play that he can bounce off of like Jesse um, and, um, and, and Missy and like uh, it, it just, it was so nice to see what was like stand up and sketch become really grounded narrative, like, insanity basically and so surreal with with the anim everything going on with the animation um and then stepping into the writer's room I got a, a sense of like all the amazing people working on it behind behind the scenes at the writer's table Nick is there um Jen Flackett is there one of the co-creators and um Andrew Goldberg one of the co-creators and and one of the showrunners who ha has been working in, in TV for a long time and is so good. Like I really, my biggest takeaway from writing on Big Mouth was like, I am such an, an Andrew Goldberg fanboy, just as like a technical writer and like a comedy writer. Like I've never seen someone 
so smoothly and generously run a, a comedy room in my life. And I, I like I'll 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 take the lessons I learned from his leadership everywhere I go from now on. He was just like he is such a master and he's like so funny and he's so um he finds everyone else so funny, which is like a dumb thing to say, but it's like, you actually don't see that with people at the top usually. Like a lot of people like really like their own ideas and it's like, he is laughing the whole time, but he's also just so like in control. I, I that was like, I was already in love with Nick and it, but I walked away being like, Andrew is like, this is how you run things. He is, he's just brilliant. And this is not your, your first animated show, but what are there changes that people might not think of? I mean, all the shows you've written on have physical comedy, but I imagine writing something animated, like how much detail goes into that? How much is in exposition that's different from a live action show? So much. I mean, there, there it's like you really spell out like the visuals so much. And there's a lot of amazing visual artists who also collaborate on what it's going to look like and how things are going to play out. But in the writing, because like, there are sets like Nick's house looks the same mm -hmm. in every episode, but like things can happen and the walls can go, you know, and ghosts can come in and whatever. So it's like when you throw out all the rules of like physical production, um, it's really up to you to imagine everything there and, and describe it and then collaborate with the artist to say like, yeah, that's, that's what I was picturing or, oh my God, you, the way you, laid it out is like, I could have never thought of that, you know? And it's like, it becomes really collaborative, but it is also very, all very like spelled out be it before it, before it gets fully animated. It's like, there's a lot of just checking in and going back and forth and collaborating, which is cool. Really cool. You're kind of seeing some visuals for those not familiar. I mean, like famously the Simpsons takes nine months, something like that. What's the process like for you guys from writing an episode to actually like seeing it done and everything else? I mean, you see it at a million steps along the way. Like right. you see, you see basically like a picture, like a, just still drawings of new characters and new spaces. You figure all that out. And then you like with, you get the actors to record the script. And then you see like almost like a flip book where it's like, you know, that characters aren't colored in and they're just kind of like moving, moving from pose to pose. And then it starts to get colored in. Like you see it happen along, you, you check in with it a million times um, and you can tweak things and give feedback and um, sort of like perfect it. And I mean, it's, it's a lot longer than nine months. Like, mm -hmm. it's like, it's more like, um, from very start to very finish, like 18 months, I would oh, say wow. like a year and a half. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can change stuff along the way, but you're, there's just, there's so many steps and so, so many technical things and so many artists involved that it just, it changes hands and it, it goes, it goes and goes and goes. Has anything changed about you writing kind of in Nick's voice? Like has his, has his um, comedy stylings like changed at all in your opinion? Or is it more about like, well, it's kind of him, but it's in this, you know, different project now. I mean, he's still just as like funny and psychotic and random <laughs> and like saying stuff that I could never in my wildest imagination come up with that kind of funny and surprising as he's always been back in the early New York City days. 
but it he's so much like he's lived like so much more of a life by now and like you know like is a dad and um has acted in dramas and comedies and movies and 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 tape specials and stuff so he's like just so much more mature as a person naturally than he would have been when I met him when we were basically kids. And so I think he just like, it's really cool to see him write and act on Big Mouth because he can draw on much deeper stuff and he can sort of like look back at childhood from, or adolescence from an adult point of view and say, that's really something interesting that we should mine and explore. Um, so yeah, he's like, he's just like, grown up a lot and it's like I think it comes out in like the sort of like the the more it's crazy to call it big mouth touching but it is like <laughs> there are like there's some really like heartfelt stuff in there mm-hmm. and it all starts from that from you know even the wildest jokes come from like what does it mean like in your heart um so like on the Lola episode like it's a crazy episode and it's kind of a movie parody but also it is like what does it feel like to have like a dad all of a sudden, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's just a more mature, more narrative, like exploration of jokes, I would say. Did you say you're still doing stand-up? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still um, doing stand-up. What is kind of your different writing processes like? Like, so imagine when you're writer's room and you're writing for a show, there's a lot of accountability there and deadlines and everything else. When you're writing more for yourself, are you able to kind of translate that? Are there other difficulties for you when there's not a deadline? I have like no discipline with stand-up <laughs> anymore, to be perfectly honest. It's like my like discipline brain, just like you said, goes into like my deadlines that like hey, and people hold me accountable for. And like I, I've now, you know, stand-up was like a really like my primary way of expressing myself like in my 20s and now that I'm in my 40s I feel and I've and and I've been able to like parlay that into a career in writers rooms that's become much more of my focus and I think of my stand up as almost like my like avant-garde <laughs> side or like my like blowing off steam side. And so I don't really like rush the joke writing. I hardly ever sit down and just like write out a joke. Um, I kind of like want to treat that almost like it's spiritual or something. And I'm like, stuff will come to me. Um, so it's a much, much slower process and a lot more personal. What What is kind of your, your style like to some degree? Are you kind of a storyteller? It sounds like maybe more of that than like one-off jokes. Yeah, definitely more of a storyteller or like I'll just kind of explore a theme for like 10 minutes or, like, you know, I'll come up like one little nugget of an idea. I'll like just sort of like follow that in a, in a rambly kind of way. I do tell some stories, but it's like a little bit more like here's a thesis on how the environment is fucked up right now or whatever. (laughs) And I'll kind of like, just let that sort of like go for like 10, 10 minutes or something. And I've been told that, and this is, I guess I, I totally see this, but like my standup style is very like compared to normal standup is like pretty quiet and like a little slow and a little rambly because I like, like, there is like this, I think this is my ego, but there is something that feels so fun to me about knowing that the audience is quiet because I they're listening and I know that there's a big laugh coming, mm-hmm. but it's like, that's the tension I kind of like love. And I, I will like 
let it go on for kind of a weird amount of time before I let myself get the laugh because it's yeah I it, there's something like a little rambly a little a little soft about it which I like did it also help you with rewriting I know a lot of young writers are not keen on rewriting I imagine when you're doing stand-up that you're repeating the same thing and trying to get to it um, did that kind of help you with that as well yeah, definitely. And like, also just being like, well, I guess I have to change that because it's, <laughs> I've done it five times now and no one laughs. So it's <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you have to be like less precious about something like, even though like you might find it funny, it's like, if you've tested enough and it doesn't work, then you have to just be like, well, I can do better. I can rewrite it. I can rewrite it. And and you, and you sort of listen to the feedback what and that you- definitely helps. What does your time look like um, kind of between jobs? Are you, do you keep ideas somewhere or is it more about um, kind of detoxing and just watching and reading and that type of thing? I am like not chill enough to do the second thing (laughs) at all. So it's like between jobs, I'm like working on a project that is like just for me, but I do plan to sell or whatever. Um, And then looking for the next job. Like I really have like a two week maximum on chillness. Like I don't, I can't, I can't just sit and read. I like, I like that for like 10 days. And then I'm like, my life is over. (laughs) No one's ever going to work with me again. I I'm worthless. So I like, I think I still have the like early career mentality of like every job could be my last job. And so it's, I look at it like monkey bars and I'm like, what's next? What's next? How do I stay off the ground? (laughs) Uh, We give a lot of great advice already. If you were kind of starting over today, I imagine you would do a lot of similar things. Would you do anything different? Would you be doing things on like YouTube or social media or anything like that? I definitely would. Like I, I'm so glad I came up before YouTube was like huge because there's not a lot of old embarrassing videos of me out there. But like, um, I do think like, and now that I'm in a position to hire people or work with people and make choices, I love people who do their own thing Mm -hmm. and are self-motivated. And the person who's like, nothing can stop me from making my short film is like the person I want to work with. Cause it's like, um, they're just motivated and I feel like um, they're going to step up to the plate and they are also going to bring something because they're not just waiting for someone to notice them. So like all the front facing video character comics, I'm like, I love that. Like that they're, they're using their downtime in their weird messy houses to just do voices and tell stories because they like need to. That really like, I really respond to that sort of energy. Um, and so, yeah, if I was starting now, I would definitely be putting out so much stuff, even if it sucked, um, and just letting it add up and letting my face and voice be out there as much as possible. And, and then just like, yeah, for advice, I'm just like, make friends, make friends who do the same thing that you do and support each other. And even when, um, if you're jealous of them because they get famous first, be really nice about it because it pays off. (laughs) Was there any kind of thinking back to earlier in your career? Were there any like false beliefs you had or any bad advice you got in the beginning that you wish you had avoided? Um, I, I get, I can't think of any like bad advice that I took. Um, but I definitely just sort of like had the feeling like I'm funny. So I'm 
do like a career or whatever. <laughs> and that was like a really bad mindset. And I think it gave me, like I said a second ago, like being jealous of people who pop first, like gave me like a weird attitude about them. And like, I'm glad I got a whole, a handle on the reality that I need to be making my own way in life as opposed to like getting noticed because certain people get noticed and other people need to clear a path for themselves. Like add um, work, add work ethic to that. And work <laughs> ethic. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I'm glad I snapped out of that, but that is like the mindset that I think was pretty toxic for me in my early twenties. And, um, luckily Nick didn't notice that <laughs> I was like, Oh, him. <laughs> um, but he is, he was so funny. It makes perfect sense. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting there. If you're looking for some more information, though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new course called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com slash television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com slash television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.